oceans rise and thunders roar, I will soar with you above the storm. Father, you are King over the flood, and I will be still and know you are God. Find rest, my soul. rise and thunders roar, I will soar with you above the storm. Father, you are king over the flood. I will be still and know you are God. When the oceans rise and thunder to those in the balcony. Hello. You're not forgotten about. There you go. And online. Jonah chapter 2. So last week we began the book of Jonah. And hopefully you understand that this book is not about a fish. We walk through that, right? And you're able to see Jonah from new eyes. It is a book about lots of things. About mission. About evangelism. Caring for loving even those who oppress you, your enemy. Uh, it's about running from God as a prodigal, uh, in this case, a prodigal prophet. It's about many things. And uh, chapter two kind of brings us to a, a very low point, literally, and also spiritually in Jonah's life. Um, in Jonah chapter one, if you recall, uh, God said, get up and go to Nineveh. Go this way, Jonah. And Jonah said, great, I'm going that way. And he ran from God. And as a storm, you know, was brewing outside, he was asleep in the lull of the ship. And in his hardness of heart, when he finally realized through the casting of lots, he was like, yes, the storm is probably because of me. Because my God is the God of the land and the sea. And he requested that he be thrown overboard which um, looks like a request to say, I'm, I'd rather die than face my own hardness of heart. But God, in what we'll call this morning a severe mercy, sent a fish to swallow him to say, no, nah, no, nah, Jonah, I'm not done with you yet. Your life isn't over yet. There is more to come. 
And so it said in, in verse uh, 17 in chapter 1, it said that God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Appointed, okay? There's, you know, a God who's sovereignly in control of everything happening here. And it says, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. By way of implication, chapter 2 comes on the back end of those three days, right? That he just kind of maybe stood there with a hard heart for a day. And then a night passed. And then a night passed, and he's like, ah, finally I have to deal with whatever's going on inside of me. And chapter 2, we can call this a dark night of the soul, I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. It's thrown around a lot. It, it came from a, a Spanish mystic writer named St. John. He's called St. John of the Cross. And if you haven't read Dark Night of the Soul, it's an interesting read. Um, I would encourage you to, do I encourage you to read it? I don't know. Now I'm thinking about it. Maybe you should. It's an interesting book. But in that book, um, you know, I can't, you know, obviously get behind everything I read. But in that book, he talks about these moments of where you hit such a low point that you kind of feel like you're, you're alive, but you're actually dead. That life is so numb, that everything is so dark around you, that even though your heart is beating, you feel like you're a walking dead person. And that's just how numb and how bleak things are. And it, it, it is a process, right? It is um, it, it's, it's a spiritual, we call it walk and road that we all have in life that oftentimes can bring us to such a low. I think most of us can relate to some degree in your life, whether it's events, something unexpected happens to you, whether due to your own sin and your own follies in the case of Jonah that you find yourself in a low of lows or whatever it may be. But in this story, because the dark night of the soul is this, that you don't waste away in that dark night, but rather you are uh, reborn, renewed in that dark night. Um, this is the theme of resurrection. As you'll see, chapter two in Jonah is actually a resurrection story. And we'll look into that in just a minute as to how that is the case. Jonah receives inward transformation that leads to an outward transformation. But as the story goes on, his outward transformation is not yet complete. It just began in chapter two, which we can also relate to. So let's dive into this. I'll, I'll read this. This is from the, the ESV. Uh, you'll, you'll notice a little different words, but that's okay because these essentially, uh, there's lots of complexities happening in chapter two. Beginning of verse one, it says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Three nights in, he says, I'm, I'm praying. I'm done, I'm doing this. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. I want to say it's kind of the understatement. Distress? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're in a fish, like in the depth of the ocean. This is a rough place for Jonah. But he goes on, right? Out of the belly, he heard the grave. Sheol is what this one says. It means the grave. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Out of the belly of the grave, I cried. And you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. And I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. God threw him in. 
chapter 1. The sailors threw him in, but Jonah says, I know that God is, he's in control right now. I know that he allowed me to be tossed in because God is even at work in those very dark places in our life. He is his fingerprints and his fingers always even there in the most unexpected places. And he was thrown into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Now we have to transport ourselves back in time to if you were alive, you know, many thousands of years ago in the ancient Near East and how they thought about certain things in this world. So the ocean for ancient Near Eastern living around the time of Jonah, which was well over 2,500 years ago, how you would have viewed the waters would have been like a, a just massive just sea of chaos. It was a symbol of chaos for the ancient peoples. Right? It was the very thing that humans could not control, that once you went out on that boat, it was going to be extremely unpredictable, not knowing what may happen to you, right? It was mysterious, it was dark, it was cold waters, it was a place that invoked fear, right? And you have in Genesis chapter one, you have this idea that it's not only one of chaos, but you have disorder. You have more order on land, but you look at the ocean, you see the waves constantly going, they're swirling. And we see this kind of reflected in Genesis chapter one when it says that um, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. And the Hebrew language used in those early verses just means like, um, you know, in the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. It, it was void. It was without form. It was, the, the literal translation could be blah. It was just this primordial soup that was just chaotic and just everywhere, and God's spirit was ready to make beauty come out of the chaos, to make order come out of the chaos simply by speaking, right? Life came out of chaos by speaking, and so as Jonah is sinking into this ocean, as the flood waters surround him into the heart of the sea, he's kind of talking like an ancient Near Eastern in this regard. He's saying, I was sinking not just literally in the ocean, into that chaos of the ocean, but I was literally also emotionally and spiritually, I was sinking in the floods of chaos. Right? He is hitting what we can call a rock bottom. But the beauty of our faith, of Christianity, is our claim that our Lord, our God, is a God even of chaos. That as Jonah is sinking, that God is able even to bring order to such darkness that Jonah found himself in. And as I said, this is a process. You know, um, we have to face these times that we're in. Because we live in an age of distraction that if you find yourself kind of sinking in these floodwaters or whatever it may be in your life, that we have a million and one ways, I'll just show you, that's found in here to say, you know what, instead of facing them, I'm just going to kind of distract myself constantly every day and morning and night and the middle of the night. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to go to bed again. I'm going to distract myself. I, I, I remember, I'll never forget having a conversation with somebody that you know, every time I looked at them, they were just doing this, you know. And I actually asked them, I said, do you ever, like, go for a walk? You know, like, go outside? Do you ever put that down or, like, you know, set time limits to cut yourself off? You know? And the person responded, no, because if I did that, I would have to be in my own head. 
I would have to face what's in my head, and I don't want to do that. And I was kind of startled, like, thank you for your honesty. But that can be the truth, can it not be? That this is hard. Like, Jonah's caught in a rough spot here, and if Jonah wants to be honest, he says, I, I caused this, right? And he was stiff, and he built that wall up to say, I'm not going to face the very thing that I caused, and God was after him, and here's the chaotic water sinking down, and you see Jonah kind of softening up in the harshness, the harsh environment that he finds himself in, and he's finally warming up. And the question I'm going to pose in front of you today for all of us here, are you willing to bring God? Because he wants to be. He is waiting on that door ready to burst in. Are you willing to let him in to that dark place in your life? Whatever it may be. Because this is a game we can all play, right? There's that corner in your heart that's like, you know, this, this one thing that happened to you. Or this one thing that you have that you're just, you're tight-fisted about that you refuse to let go. This one part of your character that you know is just very problematic, more than likely selfish, arrogance, pride, uh, uh, a desire to be loved, to whatever it may be that you just kind of cling to, and you're just like, I I just can't. Like, I I don't even want to deal with that because it's it's controlled me for so much of my life. I don't even want to face that. But you come up with this kind of religious game where all the other parts, you put on this show saying like, hey guys, I'm good. How are you? I'm great. No problem. And they're just a little corner of your heart. We're like, no or this tragedy has hit your life, and you have yet to face the emotional complexities that it has brought year after year throughout your life, but you still have that wall up. It's like everything else is God, but I just can't look there. No, I can't look there. I can't face what's there. And here's Jonah seeking, finally forced to face that part in his own life. Are you willing to let God right there? Because he is light, and he will expose that darkness but you also bring life to that darkness as we will see him do that with Jonah in this story. As we read this, you should see the form of it in your scriptures. This is a psalm. Jonah is an expert at plagiarizing because everything he says here is stolen from the book of Psalms. Every verse is spliced between four or five different psalms. He is just kind of you know, copy and pasting from the psalm book as he deals with his own struggles here, which I just, as a side note here, the psalms are a great, a great way to wrestle with these things in your own life. As a, uh, every emotion that you can think of in our human existence is found in the psalms. I encourage you to read that. I, I try to read a psalm, one, two, or three, sometimes more than that every day because of that. Because whatever I'm feeling that day, eventually I'm going to read something that matches that. Right? It's found there. So I just encourage you, practice what Jonah did here and go to the Psalms to face what God is doing in your life. Let's jump back over here in verse chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. He says, in verse 4, you know, he mentions a little bit of hope here. He says, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Hope is stirred within Jonah. He picks it back up in verse 5. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. Think of the imagery there. Just poetically, it's actually beautiful, even though it's horrifying to think about, right? He's at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me. 
forever. We'll stop in the middle of verse 6 there. It doesn't get much lower than this. For him, uh, these ancient peoples, they imagined this, you know, kind of, and he's borrowing imagery from other, you know, uh, uh, there's other books that were written from other peoples in those days that these bars on the bottom of the ocean was kind of like the entrance into the underworld or death itself. He is facing the very gate of the bars of the very gate that if you just crack that gate open, death is right there. He's looking straight at it. And we can say Jonah is expressing God. I hit the lowest of low. Now I want to go to the New Testament for a minute and say, did you know that Jesus hit a couple of lows as well during his earthly ministry that we have record of? Did he hit some pretty big, can we say emotional, spiritual lows even in his own life? One of the stories that we're going to actually visit here in depth kind of mirrors Jonah's trajectory, if you, if you will, here. It's a very famous story found in John chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you can feel free to turn there. I'll be reading from some of John chapter 11. It's the famous story of Lazarus. I think this story will help us understand what's happening here in Jonah chapter 2. You have Jesus who um, healed this woman Mary of, of multiple demons, right? And now Jesus has befriended her family Mary, her sister Martha, and also Lazarus, their brother. He had become very close with them. We can say they were besties, right? Throw it out there. They were close. This was like his, his family outside of his own, right? His, his second family. He was so very close with them. And Jesus, as he's out and about, he gets word from his disciples, hey, your, your buddy Lazarus, he's almost dead. He's sick. And what does Jesus do? After seeing him heal people and do miracles and do all those amazing things, it's like, Jesus, your friend is like on the brink of death. He unexpectedly says, great, let's hang out here for a couple more days. People are like, what? Jesus, you've, we've seen you. Oh, okay. Okay, Lord. So he hangs out for two more days. Lazarus dies. And so he goes and we'll visit, you know, what first kind of took place when he walks in, but picking this story up in verse 28. Jesus is on the scene. Lazarus is dead. There's a whole crowd gathered for the process of mourning the loss of this man. In verse 28, it says that she went, this is Martha, and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher, Jesus, he's here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went with him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. We'll visit that conversation later. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly to go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. When Mary approached him, approached Jesus, she said, Why? 
why would you let this happen, Lord? She said it in a kind way, but read between the lines. She say, why? You've healed so many people. If you were here, this wouldn't have happened, Jesus. What are you doing? I don't understand, Lord. Have you been there? Something happened in your life. You're like, I, this one does not fit into my box here. Like, God, you've effectively blown my box apart. I don't understand at this point. If only you showed up, because I know you could have. I know you're more than capable of showing up. You could have stopped this. Why? That is what she is saying to Jesus. And this is when Jesus begins sinking lower emotionally. This is his friends. This is his crew. This is his gang. This is people that he, he loved deeply. And we see Jesus kind of lowering, lowering more emotionally as he gets deeply troubled. Sadness, of course, welled up in his eyes. But we'll see something else welled up. In verse 34, Jesus says, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. You can imagine kind of taking Jesus by the hand and walking him to this dark place, this dark place of the tomb of Mary and Martha's brother, which at this point in time, we could assume would have been the darkest place in their life, just a few days fresh of losing their brother. This was the darkest place, and here we see them still clinging with a little bit of hope, maybe, but letting Jesus there, saying, Lord, you can come and see where he was, where he was laid. They led him there. And it says Jesus was deeply troubled. There's a, a big word that kind of goes here as embrimeomai. I believe that's the closest pronunciation I can give to that. And that word is there when it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit, that he was greatly troubled. But that word is interesting. If you look at it and, you know, you, you do your work and you see where else it's used, and it's referring to a horse snorting in war. And you're like, what? That's strange. It's referred to uh, somebody getting mad at somebody and scolding somebody. It's like severe agitation. It's like on the battlefield, you're, you get angry and you're like kind of like the bull and those span, you know, you're like kind of doing that thing with your foot, like you're ready to go, right? That's, that's what happened in Jesus. He got angry. And you read that, like, what, what was he angry about? Like, what was he angry at Mary and Martha? Was he, what was he angry about? And almost universally, all scholars agree here, he was angry at death. So this is my friend. I'm looking at everybody weeping and mourning and going through the darkest season in their life and he got mad at it all because he said this should not be. Mind you, he, he, he stood for two days away in order to allow this to happen, that he may show them the glory of God. But he got angry at death. Jonah calls his own dark night, right? And Jesus snorts in battle at your hardness of heart when you bring this on yourself. When you just firmly sit down and say, no, I'm going to continue to proceed in my own way and you cause chaos to yourself and to those around you, Jesus gets angry because he hates 
when he sees those broken things that take place in this world due to our sin. And he gets mad at that sin and he's ready to go after it and to remove it, just like he did with Jonah. And sometimes that comes in the form of a severe mercy, a severe grace, in Jonah's case, a fish that swallowed him up. Other events that bring about this dark night in our life, like, uh, like for Mary and Martha here, the dark night of a friend or family member dying, death, sickness, the, you know, going to the doctor and getting the worst news fathomable after a little bit of, you know, spot on the lungs or what have you, you get the news and you enter into that dark night. This is when Jesus, if you want to say literally, he starts snorting, he gets, he gets angry. He says, I want, to, I want to see these things gone forever because I'm sick of it. I hate it. I want to remove these things from this world because he wants to reverse all of these things. He wants to reverse your sin. He wants to reverse all the death that is happening, all the sicknesses and all the disease and all the mourning. He wants to reverse all of these things. And as Jesus is there and he's getting angry, we, he, his, his eyes start welling up. He starts trembling, we can assume, and as everyone starts mourning around him, it says in verse 35, Jesus, he broke down, he lost it, and he wept. He just let it go. He just wept with those around him. And they saw him weeping. They said, wow, see how he loved this man. And some of them said, but could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? What is a doubt there? It's like, oh, he's a strong man. He's the one healing everybody. Now he's crying in front of his dead friend's tomb. Like, I guess he's maybe not all that he was cracked up to be. So as you see, Jonah's kind of, you know, Jonah in this story, he goes lower and he goes lower and he goes lower, quite literally, okay, by design of this author. We see Jonah going from land, going from sea, going from sea to the hole of the ship asleep, from the hole of the ship to the ocean, to the ocean to a fish's belly, down to the root to the very mountains. He goes down and he goes down, but suddenly in Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, things are literally on the up for Jonah. And we have to pay attention to how these stories are written because these authors want you to see these things. Jonah has not gotten up yet. Right? He's been continually going down and going down. But verse 6, it says that he's, he faced the very gate of death in his own life. What happened? Yet you brought up my life from the pits, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know what's amazing about this is he cried that he was saved, but where was he still? He was still in the fish when he was crying out, I'm saved. Salvation belongs to you. Oh Lord, because the truth is that even if you're still in that circumstance, sitting right here, that if you are sitting in your chair, you can find deliverance right now from your hard hearts or from the emotional wreckage that's brought into your life. Jesus can heal you even as you sit in this pew. And the question remains, are you willing to let go and to let him do so? Are you willing to bring him to the front of that tomb. 
because only God can save. Acts chapter four says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yes, if you're a Christian, you have been saved. I understand that, but many times in the New Testament, save is also present tense because God continually saves you once again from yourself as you trip and as you stumble, and as you live in a broken world, he is actively chasing after you to rescue you, and the question still remains, will you let him? And then we see fun things happen. I was really stoked when I saw this. At first it sounds weird, but then I'm like, I get it, all right? There's three times a fish is mentioned. Two of those times is referred to as a male fish. The third time, a third time, it's referred to as a female fish. And at first, some people are like, oh, I guess the author like, just made a mistake. It's an error, you know, because a fish didn't go from boy to girl, boy, that, you know, it's, it's a mistake. And others, other people that did the work that are much smarter than myself said, no, 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 it's not a mistake. Because the one that she uses as a female is, is in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. This is right there. That's when it says it's a woman, a uh, female fish. Okay, it's a female fish. What do you call somebody living inside of the belly of a female? Pregnant. What happens at the end of pregnancy? New life. Birth. Guys, this story is about Jonah, about to be reborn. Isn't that cool? Right? This is a story about Jonah about to be reborn. And, and Jesus kind of picks up on this in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus once quoted this. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights into the heart of the earth, knowing what comes after those three days and three nights, his resurrection. And here is Jonah about to experience a little mini resurrection of his own as he is transformed. Because what happens in Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. God has a habit of just saying words and life coming out of them. Because in John chapter 11, we skipped this part on purpose. When Jesus first walked up, he was met with Martha. As he was talking to her, she said the same as that thing. She said, look, Lord, if you just came a few days ago, we wouldn't be here facing the death of Lazarus. But he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life because whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God who is coming into the world. And if we skip ahead to, John, uh, to, to verse 38 in John 11, this call of faith that we see here, Jesus as he's deeply moved, as he is angry, as he is weeping, as he is in this crowd of mourners, he comes to the very front of that tomb and in verse 39, he says, take away the stone. They're like, Lord, it's gonna smell like, what do you know? We're not taking away the stone. He says, he says in verse 40, did I not tell you? Like, did you not hear me earlier? Did, you not, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He goes, what do you mean? Take away that stone. So they did. 
And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he has said these things, he cried out. He spoke words and he said, Lazarus, come out. And what happened, we all know the story. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound the linen strips, his face wrapped with the cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Jesus spoke and life came about. God spoke into these primordial waters of chaos in Genesis chapter 1. He spoke and life was born and order was born. God spoke to the fish and Jonah was delivered and even reborn. And he can speak right now as you sit here and deliver you from that darkest place in your life. Jesus is in the business of giving you a do-over He's in the business of giving you newness of life even now as he is always constantly seeking to make all things new in this world. You can have a fresh start just like Jonah got in this story. As we aim to the back end of our sermon, Jonah was spit out onto the dry land. His transformation was not yet complete, however, as we will see him <laughs> go through some, you know, we, we talked about how this book is kind of like a comic book in some ways. It's just big. We'll see some of that stuff coming up. Jesus can provide you with salvation in him. You must understand that his death was intended to be given, right? To show us all that he has absorbed all of these things that are perhaps even due to you for your hardness of hearts. Like I've, I've paid for this stuff. Like I'm, I'm offering you new life and it's yours. I'm gonna chase after you until I get my way in your life. The question remains, how long will you resist him? How long will you resists him. He desires to speak new life into those deepest and darkest corners of your life. I titled this sermon, The Severe Mercy of God, because we think of mercy as usually light, you know, and here this mercy is somewhat severe. This is hard for Jonah. And that's what God does with those dark nights of the soul. They're severe. They're hard, and it's guaranteed that you'll go through it. And many of you say, I've already been there like three times, okay? I get it. And this is something that separates Christianity from the remainder of any other religion that you'll find in this world. Because the Bible speaks abundantly clear, even beginning in the book of Genesis, that out of those most darkest and evil, I mean, some of these situations come about in our lives from other people's sin, that you remain innocent, but you remain sinned against. You're like, Lord, I truly don't understand this one. I didn't do anything to deserve this one. Like, what is going on? Those kind of events, there's an amazing verse that is found in Genesis chapter 50 after all the drama of the story of Joseph. Just go read it. If you haven't read it before, it's the most amazing story, one of the most amazing stories you'll ever read. At the very end, after a man who had been betrayed and sent to death by his own family, found himself in prison for uh, almost 15 years to have been accused of, wrongly accused of things constantly, finally found himself delivered at the top of his game, kind of almost ruling Egypt. And his brothers realized this guy's going to like take us out. Like we've sinned so much against him. 
And he's on to like get his authoritative, you know, finger and go, I'm, this is justice. Boom. You know, like they're just waiting for it. And what does Joseph say? And this is the truth of the gospel right here that we're going to close with. He says, what you did was you intended for evil against me. What's happened in your life is related to the things that Jesus is angry about, right? Evil. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people in Joseph's sake should be kept alive. What this means is that even if the evil one is alive and well in this world, God says, I'm going to take all of his works of darkness even now, and I'm going to rob them from him. I'm going to insert myself into them. And I'm going to flip those things around, and I'm going to give life through them. I'm going to use his evil works and bring about my good purposes. And we say, hallelujah, what other hope do we have in this world? Because even when Christ was thought to have been finally conquered and the evil one was, yes, he's dead, he's dead, the resurrection comes. And God says, I use the most evil betrayal in history to bring about the salvation of this world. God can use that part of your heart and bring transformation to your life forever and ever. And the question remains, will you let him? I'm going to call our worship team up this morning. Um, if, if something just spoke to you this morning, if, if you're there and you just have such big, thick walls of resistance built up and you need to let those come crashing down, please, please don't just put one more you know, brick in that wall and try to walk out of here without facing these things. Face it. Even if his mercy has been severe, it is open for you this morning. Our elders will be standing up here for prayer. Um, grab somebody next to you and pray. And we're going to close here in song. Jesus, uh, thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have. It is not found anywhere else in this world. Thank you for the story of Jonah that we, it's kind of, you know, he can be somewhat laughable in just his extremes, but we know we can relate to this. And Lord, for the person that maybe has brought on, uh, on their own doing of the chaos in their life, Lord, may repentance be found. And may your salvation reach into that corner, Lord. For those who have been sinned against, for those who have been carrying trauma for decade after even decade in their life due to someone else's sin in their life or wherever the spectrum may be. By the power of your spirit, Lord, may we be willing for you to enter into that space in our life. For those who are in this room who may not even have a relationship with Jesus, Lord, I pray that this first step of just letting Jesus in as he is banging and he is knocking is just really just, just pursuing us. Lord, I pray that you would, that whoever that might be in this room would just let him in even for the first time and just let go and say, Lord, have your way. I need help. I repent. Lord, I need new life. Jesus, we love you. We pray this in your wonderful and holy and majestic and gracious name. Amen.
Lord, I come. I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. And without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my. Jesus, you're my.
Hallelujah. Earlier in the worship time, the Lord put a scripture verse on my mind and I was going to share it, but I didn't. But I feel like it's a good addendum, not that anything needs to be more to be said after that unbelievable, powerful message. But the the scripture was Proverbs 21, 30 and 31. No wisdom, no counsel, no understanding can prevail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory is the Lord's. The victory is the Lord's. Nothing can prevail against him. Whatever we're going through, whatever dark night of the soul we're experiencing, whatever has kept us in bondage, whatever wisdom we've heard from the lips of men, whatever understanding that's come from ungodly counsel, whatever that is, nothing can prevail against the Lord. We need him. We need him in this day more than ever, I guess you could say. I'd invite you to come as we close. Receive from him this morning, whatever it is your needs are, whatever it is. Don't hesitate to come. Father, we thank you for your word, your powerful word, which does not return to you void. You've imp- You have deposited something by your Holy Spirit through Pastor Daniel on our hearts this morning through this message from Jonah. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring forth harvest from it, Lord. That, Lord, this wisdom, this understanding, this counsel, which is from you, will prevail in our lives today and in the days ahead. We know that the victory is yours. In Jesus' name, amen.